and Teresa, who are going to speak about cervical screening in New South Wales. Penny Manolis is a program manager of cervical screening. She originally trained as an occupational therapist in 1985 in Western Australia, worked in London until 1995 as head of occupational therapy at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. She spent 25 years in Australia, London and South Africa in HIV, recently in Sydney local health district, managing the statewide Heterosexual HIV Service and Outreach Allied Health Service in Redfern. Penny has a Bachelor of Applied Science, Occupational Therapy from Curtin University in Western Australia, and a Masters of International Public Health from Sydney University. Penny is currently the Program Manager of New South Wales Cervical Screening Program at the Cancer Institute of New South Wales. And Teresa Fisher is the Relationship Manager of Cervical Screening. Teresa started out as a scientist in the UK and has a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry from the University of Bath and a PhD in Neurobiology from, Univers from University College London. She spent five years working in laboratories before moving on to promote science to the public. Teresa has over 20 years experience in public health, having worked in the fields of tobacco control, smoking cessation, cervical and breast cancer screening and haematological cancers. Teresa is currently the Relationship Manager of Cervical Screening at the New South Wales Cervical Screening Program at the Cancer Institute of New South Wales. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, um, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting today on Aboriginal land and pay my respects to any Elders past and present and any Aboriginal people here with us today. Um, uh, so we're here, as, as was said, Penny and I from the New South Wales Cervical Screening Program and we're going to talk to you today about cervical screening. Of course, um, uh, certainly we're going to try and paint the sort of picture of the story from the past through to now and through into the future. Um, Penny and I are not clinical in the sense we're not nurses or doctors. So if you ask questions that are um, more than our level of understanding, we might put that back to the audience. And we have at least one plant in the audience who we know is a fabulous champion of cervical screening. So. Um, that's Joe over there. <laughs> so if we have any tricky t um, uh, clinical questions, we might ask Joe to, to respond to those. So cervical screen. So where have we come from and where are we now? I'm going to do a little bit of refresher about human papillomavirus. It's a little bit unsure about your knowledge and understanding and background with regard to cervical screening. Um, uh, I'm going to talk about the renewal of the cervical screening program that happened on the 1st of December 2017 uh, and include a little bit of a focus on screening in pregnant women, go on to about where we're going to, where to find more information and then really the uh, other half of our time we want to put over to questions questions and answers. So obviously we have a lot of questions we'd like to ask you. We hope you'll have questions you'd like to ask us. So. The actual speaking bit will be about half an hour. So hopefully, all in all, we won't ho hold anybody up from lunch, which is the important thing. Okay, so cervical screening. This is a huge public health success story. So we've had, um, in the past, we had the test, the PAP test, uh, which was developed by George Papanakaulu um, in the late 1920s and uh, was adopted in clinical use in Australia in the, I think, the from the 1960s in a sort of ad hoc, disorganised way, if you like. Um, in other words, there was no fixed programme or guidance about how often 
um, to do screening until uh, the organised approach was actually set up in 1991 in this country. Um, and what that meant was there was advice about how often you should screen. Of course, in the past, it was every two years. Um, uh, registers were set up in each state and territory to hold um, women's test results. And um, reminder letters were issued to women if they were overdue um, and follow-up for women who should have gone for um, uh, repeat tests and hadn't gone were also done there. And that made an enormous difference. That um, uh, cut in half both incidence and mortality from cervical cancer. So that's an incredible success over that 20 year or more period of time. And what that meant was that Australia now has one of the lowest rates of cervical cancer in the world. And I think that's something we should all be proud of. However, and there are however's here, there's still about 800 women diagnosed in Australia every year with cervical cancer and about 300 deaths. Um, what we do know is uh, the majority of cervical cancers do occur in women who have ever neither been screened or very lapsed. And unfortunately, we had a plateau in both incidence and mortality in around about 2002. So fantastic gains, fantastic progress, and then things flatlined. So the parallel story to cervical screening is the story of the human papilloma virus. Uh, its role in cervical cancer and, and vaccination. So in 1982, Dr. Housen uh, discovered that uh, human papilloma virus is the cause of almost all cervical cancers. In the 1990s and to the early 2000s, Professor Ian Fraser and colleagues in Queensland worked to develop the first vaccine for human papilloma virus. And that vaccine was introduced into schools um, in 2007. And at that time, that was um, a vaccination for girls only, uh, aged um, between 12 and 13. In 2013, that schools-based vaccination program was expanded to include boys as well. And there's lots of good reasons for doing that. One reason, of course, is about herd immunity. Um, to be really successful in preventing um, cervical cancers, you want to be vaccinating the entire co cohort, male and female, because, of course, if you only do the girls, then there's going to be the boys will still hold the um, will still get infected and you'll be spreading things backwards and forwards. And also because human papillomavirus is not only um, uh, infecting cervical cancer, it's also involved in a whole range of other cancers as well. So um, fantastic opportunity here to make a lot of difference, not just in cervical cancer. So when the vaccine was first in, out in schools, it was quadrivalent, meaning there are four, it's against four types of human papillomavirus. Two types are um, benign disease, which is 6 and 11 for genital warts, and the other two for oncogenic cancer-causing types, 16 and 18. And type 16 and 18 in Australia are responsible for about 70% of cervical cancers. Oh, and it was a three-dose regime to begin with, with the vaccination. So that was at the past um, and coming up to the present now. So um, in 2017, 1st of December, a huge change in the way cervical screening has done in this country. And that was a huge, um, based on a massive amount of research uh, and evaluation all over the world that was um, analysed by government agencies. The Medical Services Advisory Council did a lot of work here in preparation and everything really changed about cervical screening. Um, and the terminology here was used was called renewal of the programme. Um, and I will talk a bit more about what that means 
uh, a little bit later on. Uh, but one of the main things that changed was the type of test. So we've gone from the PAP test, uh, which looked at the cells of the cervix, to the cervical screening test, which actually looks for the presence of oncogenic or cancer-causing human papillomavirus. At the same time as we changed the test type, we also changed from having state and territory, a PAP test registers, to the establishment of a new national cancer screening register. Um, and uh, just shortly after that, uh, in February um, 2018, the schools-based vaccination program also changed to include a new um, non-availant, meaning nine um, HPV types are in the vaccine now. Uh, so that's an addition of, more, of another five oncogenic HPV types to that. Um, and that now is protective against 90% of cervical cancers. Um, it was found um, from the previous vaccine that in fact two doses is perfectly satisfactory. So now it's two doses. Um, of the new vaccine in the schools. And we know that vaccination is working because there's already been um, evidence to say that there's a decline in vaccine-targeted human papillomavirus infections and high-grade lesions in the vaccinated cohort. So we know this is working, so that's fantastic. So just a little bit more about human papillomavirus as the cause of cervical cancer. So human papillomavirus is the main cause of cervical cancer. It's an extremely common um, virus. Uh, it's highly infectious. Um, about eight out of 10 of us will have been infected at some point in our lives. And for the majority of us, this is a transient, harmless infection, uh, asymptomatic, cleared by our own immune systems in one to two years, usually in those early years when we're first sexually active. So we would never know. We'd never know that we've been infected. It's passed between people through sexual activities, skin to skin or skin to mucosa. Um, and we should consider that cervical cancer is actually a very rare outcome of infection with oncogenic human papillomaviruses that does not clear up over a long period of time. So there's about 100 different types of um, human papillomavirus, about 40 types affect the anogenital region, and of that only about 15 types are um, oncogenic cancer causing, and as I mentioned before, the two worst types, if you like, are types 16 and 18. So I, you may well have seen this slide before, it's just to give a demonstration of the way in which you can go from human papillomavirus infection persistence through to cancer. So. Um, on the left-hand side, the normal cervix, and you can consider, especially when people are first sexually active, that there's a bit of a cycle going on here. Infection and clearance. Infection and clearance. Continuing on, we don't know we've been infected. If that infection persists, you can start to see um, some low-grade changes in the cells of the cervix, but nevertheless, even at this point, as shown by the double arrow there, most of those uh, infections are cleared as well. Where things become... Um, more of, of concern is when there's progression over a number of years from an infected cervix to the point where you get some high-grade uh, abnormalities or precancers. Even here there can be some regression and clearance but it's less usual as shown by the dotted line. So, and then if, if those high-grade abnormalities are not treated then they can over time progress to cervical cancer. So we're talking here of a time frame of about 10 to 15 years. Um, and I think an important thing to note here is you, HPV infection, you can't treat HPV infection. 
you can only treat abnormalities. So it's at this high-grade abnormalities or precancer um, uh, end of the continuum that you can actually look at treatment. Okay, so to talk a bit more about the cervical screening program, what does it mean and what has changed? So we're talking about changes with renewal from the 1st of December 2017, so everything changed. We moved from the PAP test for cells to the cervical screening test. Um, and this is a test that if you're a woman, you don't know that it's different because you still go along and you still have your appointment with a delightful speculum. And um, a nurse or doctor is still taking a sample of cells from the cervix. The first difference is rather than those sample being smeared onto a slide, the sample is put into a liquid the liquid sent to the laboratory and at the laboratory and um, the first test the primary test is to look for the presence of human papillomavirus so uh, if um, human papillomavirus is found in that sample and it's an oncogenic type then there's an automatic resampling to look at the cytology so you have both the result of um, the HPV infection type and you have um, what the cells look like as well and those two things combined together um, indicate what should happen next. So when we talk about being positive for um, HPV with the cervical screening test, there's a kind of a bit of a triage that goes on here. So when the laboratory tests, they test for type 16 and or 18 because those are the most important types and most likely to cause problems. And then they pull all the other positive um, HPV types that are oncogenic but are not 1618 into another grouping. So it's, it's a bit, I think it's a little bit tricky, the wording, but it's two types. Then you've got the 16 and or 18, then you've got the not 16 and or 18. So a bit of a triage because there's slightly different ways in which women um, will be treated or um, uh, monitored based on those results. So the screening interval, because um, the cervical screening test is so much better than the PAP test, because you're catching the infection first before it starts to cause potential problems, uh, it's actually safe if a woman tests and she's HPV negative, it's safe for her to come back in five years' time to be retested. And in fact, that's safer than it was with the two-yearly PAP test. So I can't emphasize more, this is a much better, more accurate test. Um, so the age range, is, that's another big change that's happened. So the age range used to be start um, going for PAP tests between the ages of 18 and 20 and continue to 69. All the evidence, well, in fact, 20 years of having an organised cervical screening programme did not change the incidence or mortality from cervical cancer for women under the age of 25, So, um, which is unfortunate. And, of course, sometimes women were identified with having uh, abnormalities that would have cleared and would have changed, and they may have been treated. So that's one of a number of rationale for why the age range has gone up to, 20, to commence at 25. It's also shifted the other end to go up to 74. So there there is evidence that going up to that age will um, increase the number of cervical cancers, cervical precancers detected and prevent cervical cancers. And all the clinical follow-up um, has been, of course, completely redesigned and rethought uh, with new clinical pathways. And the, the, the Bible of that is um, uh, Cancer Council um, Guidelines 2016, which are available on a wiki platform, and I'll give the um, reference for that a bit later on. But that is the absolute place to go to to get clinical information. So something else that changed um, with the introduction of uh, the new cervical screening program was that now there is an option for, self, for sample self-collection for some women. 
I think the first thing to really emphasize here, this is a vaginal sample. When I first heard about this, I thought, how the hell would you find your cervix? I mean, I'm sure that's not an easy thing to do. So it's, it's a vaginal sample, um, but it must be collected at a health care clinic. And there are eligibility criteria at this current point in time. The first one is that a woman must be aged over 30 years. Um, and she must have refused a clinician-collected sample and either never have had a pap test or a cervical screening test or be overdue for screening by two years or longer. There's no fancy equipment for this. This is a dry flocked swab self inserted into the vagina and the current one that is accredited is, you're probably more familiar with the Copan Flock Swab 552C than I am. Um, so I just wanted to mention one thing. Because you're not sampling the cervix, you can't look at the cells. So all this test can tell you is, are you positive for um, human papillomavirus? And if you are, is it type 1618? Or is it the type not 1618? And the reason why this is important is, and I'll talk a bit more about results a bit later on, but if you do a self-collect and you return type 16 or 18, then the referral straight to colposcopy. If you return a type HPV that's not 1618, then unfortunately the woman has to go back to a healthcare provider to take a sample of cells because in that case it's the cells themselves and what they look like as well as the result that inform the management. Um, uh, so, of course, this is a wonderful that there is self-collection available, but there's been a few um, teething problems, uh, most notably that a lot of laboratories are not yet accredited to process self-collect samples. So, for example, at the moment we have, in New South Wales, we have one of the largest um, New South based, New South Wales based laboratory groups that um, can process self-collect samples, and in Victoria they have one laboratory there. So our advice for anyone who wants to look into this is you need to contact your pathology lab to see if they're able to process self-collect samples or not. And the reach is actually quite good because in New South Wales because this is one of the bigger laboratory groups. Self-collection is not suitable for pregnant women. So I talked to a little bit earlier about who the cervical screening test is for. Really it's for all all asymptomatic women who've ever been sexually active and are aged between 25 and 74 years, whether they're vaccinated or not, we talked a little bit about that before, whether they've been sexually active last week or 10 years ago, it doesn't matter because the virus um, takes a long time to actually cause problems, whether they've had one, part, one sex partner or many, whether they've had sex with men or with women, it's safe in pregnancy. And um, we talked earlier about the later age range with the new cervical screening test being between 70 and 74. So women are advised to have their final test at that point in time. If that test comes back HPV negative, then they can safely stop screening at that age. If a woman has had a subtotal hysterectomy, she would need to seek advice about whether she needs to continue screening or not. And that generally will depend upon whether her cervix has been conserved or not in that process. So I just wanted to put in a little bit more information about um, cervical screening in pregnant women. Uh, everything we do and say at the cervical screening program is based on the national guidelines. So the advice is if, if a woman is due or overdue for a cervical screening test or if she's never had a cervical screening test, 
and she's over 25. It's safe to offer a cervical screening test at any time during the pregnancy. And I've quoted out of the guidelines there, um, a woman can be safely screened at any time during pregnancy, provided that the correct sampling equipment is used. And the recommendation is to use a broom-type sampler brush, but not a cyto brush or a combi brush. I've got a picture on the next slide. I'm sure you're super familiar with all, all of these. Um, and I guess to just to bear in mind that for some women, pregnancy might be their first opportunity to actually have a cervical screening test. And they're in their glory on the left with the tick, the broom type, and on the right with the cross, the combi brush or cyto brush. So what about the postnatal period. It's actually, uh, counterintuitively, it's a little bit more complicated in the postnatal period. So you could offer a woman um, a cervical screening test at any point in the postnatal period if they're due or overdue, or if they've never been screened and over 25. And testing for oncogenic human papillomavirus, that's accurate at any point in the postnatal period. It doesn't matter. However, there can be some difficulties when you look at the cells, the cytology, particularly in that early period after birth when there's lots of changes in the cells of the cervix. So for this reason, it's preferable to offer screening not less than six weeks and preferably at three to six months or later postpartum. However, you're really going to need to make a judgment here because, of course, if you've got a woman, she's never screened before, and you've got an opportunity here. Opportunistic screening at six weeks is still going to be a lot better than no screening at all. So this is just a summary, generally, of um, what the results look like from a cervical screening test. And this risk categorization is the same whether a woman has had uh, a self-collect sample or a clinician-collected sample. So broadly speaking, there are three levels of risk low risk. So what that means is the woman's come for her test and no oncogenic human papillomavirus has been found. That's going to be about 90% of women are going to be in that category. So absolutely the majority of women will return a negative result and then they can come back to screen again in five years. A small percentage of women are going to return what we call an intermediate category. And this specifically refers to them being in having an infection but it's not type 1618. So it's still oncogenic type, but not the big scary red lights flashing types. It's the other types. And um, when a result happens uh, for not 16 or, or 18, then it's the, what the cells look like that determine the next step in the management. So if a woman returns that result, and they look at the cells, and the cells, hmm, they look normal or only slightly abnormal, then what what we think is being happening here is this is an active infection, but it's not making a huge impact on the cells. And the advice is for the woman to come back um, to repeat a human papillomavirus test in 12 months. And that's just to check that the infection has cleared. So the highest risk category, so there's two reasons why a woman might get into this category. First one, she um, uh, is found to have oncogenic HPV and it is type 16 or 18 and irrespective of what her cells look like, she goes straight, she should be referred to see a, um, a colposcopist uh, who will do an assessment and to determine if treatment is required. So that's the first one, she is tested positive 16 or 18. The other reason why she could be in a higher risk category is that she's tested positive, it's not type 16 or 18, but when the cells are look at, looked at, they can be seen to be um, highly abnormal, a high-grade abnormality, in which case she also should be referred to a colposcopist for assessment to determine if treatment is required. 
a very small percentage of results can be unsatisfactory. They could be unsatisfactory for either HPV or cytology. And in either case, you would recall the woman for a retest within six to 12 weeks for either a repeat HPV or repeat cytology as required. I put in this slide, and I have to say, this is out of my area of expertise. So you see, I've just relied on the guidelines and clipped these in. But I just thought you might be interested to hear a bit about, so if you have a pregnant woman um, and she tests and she comes back in the higher risk category, what, what would happen then? So just picked out three of the recommendations from the guidelines. Firstly, colposcopy during pregnancy. The aim of colposcopy in a pregnant woman who's tested as in high-risk category is to exclude the presence of invasive cancer. And if that's excluded, then to reassure her that the pregnancy will not be affected by the presence of an abnormal cervical screening test result. Picked out another recommendation here that treatment can be deferred to, to after the pregnancy if this is a, a high-grade lesion. So definitive treatment of a suspected high-grade lesion, except invasive cancer, may be safely deferred until after the pregnancy. Um, and then the final recommendation I picked out is referral of a pregnant woman with invasive disease. Uh, pregnant women should be referred and seen within two weeks by a gynecological oncologist or gynecological cancer centre for multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary team review and management. So we found in um, hearing back from health professionals since the renewal of the cervical screening program is that sometimes there's still a bit of confusion out there around um, what cervical screening is for. So we always want to make it clear, and I'm sure you are well aware, cervical screening test is for women without symptoms. So what about women with symptoms? So again, I'm absolutely sure you're going to know more about symptoms suggestive of cervical cancer than I am, but these are the ones that are um, listed. Um, by the national program. So symptoms suggestive of cervical cancer, for example, abnormal vaginal bleeding, any bleeding after sex between periods of postmenopausal, or unexplained or persistent vaginal discharge, especially if offensive or bloodstained, or unexplained persistent deep pain during intercourse. In any of those situations, the woman is considered to be symptomatic. It doesn't matter what her age is. Um, she's not suitable for screening. She needs to go down a diagnostic pathway. Uh, she'd usually require gynecological assessment in addition to what they term diagnostic co-testing. Uh, and if you were to order this on a pathology test form, you'll see it's a separate from the cervical screening test. And co-testing means that you are saying, please test this um, sample for both human papillomavirus and cytology at the same time on the same sample. So that's different from cervical screening. Cervical screening, you test for the HPV, and then only if it's positive does it go on to automatically look at the cells. For women with symptoms, you need to ask for both HPV and the cytology to be done at the same time. So I just included that because there's been quite a bit of confusion out there between co-testing and cervical screening. So that's kind of the story of where we come from and where we are now. So just coming towards the last few slides here, uh, where are we going where are we going next? So now that we have both fantastic human papillomavirus vaccination and great new cervical screening test, this actually means that eliminating cervical cancer is now a real possibility. Um, what does that mean? So there's a definition, elimination threshold. This is defined as less than four women per 100,000 diagnosed with cervical cancer. And according to modeling that's been done by Cancer Council New South Wales, we should reach elimination in Australia by the 2030s. 
The World Health Organization as well estimates elimination is achievable within this century in every country in the world. And that all sounds fantastic. It is. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. However, there is a big proviso at the end of this, and it is big. Um, priority populations in this country and worldwide are unlikely to reach this target without major interventions. And in this country, what do we mean by that? Well, for starts, about one and a half million women in Australia are estimated to be underscreened or never screened. And within that group, there's a specific group, Aboriginal women, who are absolutely at most risk here. Um, and we know that Aboriginal women are diagnosed with cervical cancer more than twice the rate of the general population. And they die from cervical cancer almost four times the rate um, of, the, of the general population. So in our program, we have a refocused to, amongst other priorities, have a big focus on, on, on Aboriginal women. Um, and we can certainly talk a bit more about that once I've just finished off the last slide or two here. And the final one, oh, skipped again. Just where to find more information. So I mentioned before our Bible is the um, Cervical Screening Clinical Guidelines, and that's available on a wiki platform, meaning that changes and updates can be made as more information comes in. Uh, that's developed by the Cancer Council. You can just Google um, Cancer Council Wiki Guidelines Cervical Screening, and it will pop straight up. The National Cervical Screening Program is the Commonwealth Government site, has a really wonderful website. It's not flashy, but it's completely packed with fabulous information uh, for, for women. Uh, it's tr information translated into 26 community languages and, to, and into eight, uh, six Aboriginal languages as well. Great information for healthcare providers, including um, sort of quick guides to the various clinical pathways. So if you haven't looked there, I'd recommend that you do. Um, the National Cancer Screening Register, you can contact them in the way that you may have contacted our PAP test register in the past to find out um, the date of a, um, a woman's last uh, screening test or um, to provide um, any other information or to find out if she's had a history of abnormal tests in the past. So that's good to contact. Women, of course, as well can contact the register to update their details too. Um, and then the final website is our own um, Cancer Institute um, cervical screening program website where we've got more information available for you there too. Uh, and there is also, if you're very interested, the National Prescribing Service have a fantastic online six modules for health professionals around cervical screening. I believe that's still available. So you just go into National Prescribing Service under their Medicines Wise Learning and, and I recommend that you might consider doing that if you're interested. How this came about that we came to talk to you today is that one of our um, uh, one of our staff that left us a few years ago during the middle of all of this change uh, came to work here and she came and contacted us and said, hey, there's a group here that really you'd, you might like to meet and vice versa that may be right at the coalface and really at the right point to opportunistically offer cervical screening um, but may not be aware fully of all the changes that we've just talked about which are fairly extensive really when you're dealing with a woman who's asking you a lot of questions, there's a, a hell of a lot of new information to provide to them. So um, Ali was instrumental in getting us here and we, uh, I guess as a program at the Cancer Institute, we realised there, is, there has been so much change going on in the last few years where New South Wales used to have its own PAP test register and you could ring up and find out when you'd had your test or a doctor could call. Um, and, and we all understood the old program of PAP testing. Um, and in the last two years, we've changed 
over to this new program. We no longer have the PAP test register. It's operated by Telstra Health at a Commonwealth level. Um, and you can now call there and get that information. But uh, we realised as well this all meant something different because we're talking about looking for a virus, not looking for abnormal cells. So the difference between the PAP and the HPV program is, is vastly different. And, different. and I suppose for us as a program, we've been thinking about what does that mean? Who are the stakeholders that we need to engage with? And looking at different groups who come across our priority populations um, and ha could have a really big role to play in engaging with um, Aboriginal women um, and culturally diverse groups. Um, and that's kind of why we're here, is we realise you see women over and over again in the journey of their pregnancy, right through from the time that they're aware, right through to a number of months after and beyond. So um, we feel that working with you is, is something that we could do going forward to really look at what are the opportunities here for us to make a difference with those populations that currently aren't screening. And there are many women that aren't screening. Um, some of us aren't screaming, I'm sure. Some of you people are feeling uncomfortable. You think, oh gosh, I need to go and do it. It is not a test we like to do, we know that. But we know with the populations that we are having our biggest issue with, um, Aboriginal populations and Torres Strait Islander women, culturally diverse groups of women, we know there's many, many barriers to screening. And some of them might be, um, you know, all the things that you're probably coming up against when you're out there in your everyday work, including um, sexual trauma or abuse. It could be shame and body shame. Um, it could be a range of issues, but none of us actually like going for this test. So for certain populations, we know that this is even harder. Um, just the conversations about it is harder. Could I ask if there was one thing that the, the New South Wales Cervical Program could do for midwives, what do you think we could do better? Do we need to do more education? More of this, letting people know about the new HPV and the new cervical screening program, the renewed program, all of this stuff. Yeah, so we need your help to point us in the direction of how we can do this better and actually strengthen the partnership somehow. So we'll keep talking to you. Thank you very much.